Welcome to the Short Term Show, the show about short term rentals and long term wealth, with real property owners hosting real properties who are crushing it in the vacation and short term rental space. And here's your host, Avery Carl. Hey guys, thank you and welcome back to the Short Term Show. Today we have Yono Weiss. He is the authority in the cost segregation space and we are very excited to have him. Yona, how are you doing today? I am doing wonderfully. Thank you so much, Avery, for having me on the show. Yeah, thank you so much for coming. So I know we have a ton of clients in common. There are probably a lot of people uh, listening today who have no idea what a cost segregation analysis is. You're doing one for me right now, and I don't really even know what it is. So can you um, just give us a little bit of background on what that is, what the process looks like, what the benefits are of a cost seg? Yeah, sure. I mean, very simply, cost segregation is just a weird name, but it is depreciation. Okay, And depreciation is a tax deduction that anyone gets when you own a property, whether it's a short-term rental, whether it's a long-term rental, whether it's a business property, any type of investment property besides for your personal residence, you get a tax income tax deduction called depreciation. I'm sure you've heard of this before, right? However, there is a strategy, really a method of depreciating a property on a different timeline than the normal 27 and a half or 39 year timeline that properties are usually put on, which means you can accelerate a portion of depreciation of those tax deductions to get bigger tax deductions in the earlier years of ownership. Okay, so simply put, cost segregation, we're segregating the cost, if you will, breaking it down into different components that depreciate on different schedules. Okay, so that's, in a nutshell, what it is, how it's done is a very specific engineering method of an engineer construction engineer actually coming to the property understanding what the tax code uh, says about all these different individual components like personal property like furniture and stuff like that depreciates on a five-year schedule stuff like pavement on a 15-year schedule so you have a driveway or parking lot and things like that so they need to know and there are dozens of categories that a property can break up into these different components Awesome. So can anyone just go get a cost segregation? Like, is this something that, so say somebody owns like 10 properties, they can just say, Hey, I think I want to do this one. And they just go do it. Is there a, a better time uh, in one's investment career to do a cost seg or to not do one? Yeah, it, it can be really done at any point. A lot of people like to get it done in the first year of ownership, you know, to really get it set up from the get go, get your taxes straight. Uh, from the first year going forward. However, it, this is something that can be done retroactively. If you've owned a property for a year or a number of years, you can actually get the tax deductions that you missed in previous years. You can get that and take that going forward as well. Um, so it is something that really should be looked at on an individual basis. Uh, everyone's tax planning strategy is different. And so I'm not here to tell you what you should or shouldn't be doing. That's something you should definitely consult with your ta uh, you know, CPA, your tax strategist with. But it is certainly something that is a, uh, a strategy a lot of people are using in order to lower their tax liability. Literally, I mean, I like to say this, but it's so true. 
literally people paying little to no income tax, um, not only on their rental properties, but in many cases on any other income as well. Awesome. So there's one thing that you said in the previous answer uh, that kind of caught my eye. So a lot of my clients, a lot of short-term rental investors, their properties come furnished and they, you know, they're furnished rentals. So you mentioned there are different parts of the property, like the furniture or the driveway that can be depreciated. So are you able to depreciate the furniture on some of these things? Yeah, absolutely. And so depreciation, I just want to clarify one thing, because it sounds bad. It sounds like, oh, it's going down in value. I'm I'm depreciating. I'm I'm causing something to go down in value. It's not what you're doing. It's a tax term that it's a borrowed term, really, that they took that, that things go down in value. So let's just get get that clear out of the way, because I know people hear the word and they're like, what? I don't want to depreciate. It means it's a tax deduction. So yes, you can um, really get a tax deduction called depreciation on anything in your property. So your purchase price, and this is really the incredible thing about cost segregation, how it works. We're looking at your purchase price. Okay. You spent, let's say a million dollars. Okay. I'm exaggerating, but just a round number on a property. Now you want to know how much depreciation can I take? And so a normal, what's called straight line depreciation, which means you're taking the entire amount, subtracting a certain amount for land, which does not depreciate. And then the remaining amount you can take as a tax deduction over a 27 and a half or 39 year period. Depends if it's residential or commercial. And believe it or not, a lot of short-term rentals are considered commercial on a 39 year schedule, even though if you had it as a long-term rental, it would be on a 27 and a half year schedule. So you take that, divide that by 39. So you're getting essentially about $20,000 a year as a tax deduction. That's regular depreciation. Once you come and identify, oh, oh wait a second, there's all these furniture, furniture, there's cabinets, there's appliances, maybe there's you know fixtures and window treatments and all kinds of the flooring, the carpeting or things like that, all of that and especially, like you said, short-term rentals can have, you know, a lot of amenities. Uh, I mean, one of our clients, you know, showed us picture, you know, we, the engineer, I saw the pictures is like a pool table and, you know, foosball table and, you know, all these fountains and all these kind of stuff, which is all of that can be depreciated on a five-year schedule, meaning anything inside the property that's not structural. So yes, we're coming in, identifying all those individual items, and then you're able to take the value of those components, of those assets, really, as a tax deduction at a faster rate over a five-year schedule. That is so interesting. So let's, let me ask this question. So a property that is furnished with really, really, really high-end furniture versus like Ikea, is Mm -hmm. that a, does that come into play at all the value of the furniture and how much it can depreciate? Yeah, it definitely can. Um, One thing that's interesting about depreciation is when you are buying furniture um, after the acquisition, okay? So your acquisition, you're depreciating the whole property as one. And then with that one property, you can break down into these different categories. That really depends less on you know, the Ikea versus the expensive furniture, more on how much is everything together broken down and how much percentage of the furniture is there. Okay? It's less looked at how much it actually cost um, on an individual basis. Cause again, we're taking the purchase price and including that in kind of reverse engineering the entire thing and breaking it up into different pieces. So that's different than if you, you know, bought a property, you're depreciating that and then you go out 
afterwards and buy furniture, now you can actually take the real, you know, 100% value of that furniture and take that as a tax deduction because it was placed in service, put in your property after uh, you already purchased the property. So a little complicated there. A little bit, yeah. 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 Uh, and I'm somebody who is not well versed in this kind of stuff at all. So I'm just very much a newbie asking you these questions, hoping that my other newbie uh, listeners can can get some good information out of this. Sure. So how is it determined the the value of of these properties other than the purchase price of you know how much you're going to be able to depreciate it in the first year on the on the cost sake? Yeah, I mean, the IRS requires you to use the purchase price. Unfortunately, it doesn't matter what your, uh, you know, what the value of the property is. Let's say you got an appraisal for, you know, twice the value of the actual amount that you spent. Unfortunately, from a tax perspective, they're only allowing you to deduct um, on an overall, you know, basis how much was spent. So regardless of how much you put in, and actually you can get it financed. And so you're able to take the tax deduction, the depreciation based on the purchase price, even if you only put down 10% or 20%, you now get to take that tax deduction um, of the entire amount. So I, I do want to clarify something just you mentioned about how much you get in the first year. There is something that uh, is called 100% bonus depreciation, which essentially allows you to take a huge first year tax deduction. Because essentially what we're doing, like I said, is we're breaking down a property from structural, which is 27 and a half, 39 year, and accelerating certain aspects like furniture and appliances that stuff on a five-year schedule other stuff outside the building called land improvements pavement landscaping fencing all that stuff on a 15-year schedule so essentially we're accelerating to different faster schedules five-year 15-year property once you've done that there's a new law that says you have the option to take 100 percent of that accelerated depreciation in the first year as a tax deduction okay and this is huge this is i mean called bonus depreciation so essentially what we're doing is we're looking at about typically 20 to 30 percent of the overall property value and taking that as a accelerated depreciation deduction and you have the option to take that in the first year so just to put that in numbers because i know a lot of people aren't numbers people buy a million dollar property separate it a little bit for land you're left with let's say nine hundred thousand. okay 20 percent of that we're talking about 180,000, very, very conservative here, 180,000, $200,000 of first year tax deduction. Okay, so you may have put down 20%, $200,000 in the first year, you can take that entire amount as a tax deduction. Again, this is going against your income tax. So it's a huge benefit to literally wipe out your income tax liability. Wow, that is huge for for investors. That's, that's a really big deal. Yeah, uh, <laughs> that's a lot of money. Uh, that they can save. So look, one more question, uh, kind of about, about the, the years that you can do. So sure. if somebody says, okay, I want to do exactly the way that you just said it, but I don't want to do that all at one time. Like, I don't want to take that whole 180, 200,000 on the first year. Maybe I want to do like a hundred thousand this year and maybe another hundred thousand next year. Is that allowed right. or do you have to do it all at once? Yeah, you, so you have the option. Once you've done the cost segregation study and you have accelerated depreciation to these faster categories, so essentially that $200,000 normally will be split up, um, front-loaded into a five-year category. So instead of the $200,000 all at once, you could get you know an extra $40,000 deductions each year for the first five years, essentially. And there are other methodologies of kind of spreading that out. So it does depend on everyone's situation. There may be uh, a way to 
get it and at a, a more uh, advantageous rate or you know time period that's going to be work for you better. Uh, I will mention that having more tax deductions than you actually have income is not necessarily a bad thing because although it does create what's called a passive loss, meaning it just kind of goes into negative and you don't pay any taxes, but you can't use any of those extra deductions. However, they do carry forward, which means you can use them in the future. Okay, you can use it. They don't go away. They don't disappear. You can use them in the future um, uh, years as tax deductions. That's awesome. So I might be getting a little bit in the weeds here. So <laughs> go as far as, as far deep and wide as you want. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, so from a lending standpoint, so when people are going to get conventional financing and say they've done uh, a big cost seg study the previous year and they're showing a passive loss, which is great for taxes, but not mm -hmm. always great for getting conventional financing approved. So how does that affect uh, getting conventional financing uh, with the next year after you do a cost seg, for example? You know, it's it, unfortunately that a lot of lenders are not savvy enough to understand that depreciation is not a real loss. I mean, it's not a real, um, you know, you're not showing a real loss. It's a paper loss, which means, you know, a savvy lender and believe it, you, your question is very valid because it comes up a lot. And unfortunately, there are a lot of conventional lenders, banks, especially smaller banks that are residential lenders are not are not used to this. And so they treat Schedule E income, which is the passive income, the same as they would treat the active income. And that's just wrong um, in the rules. And any commercial lender knows this, that depreciation, the deduction is really should be added back because think about it like this. If you made $100,000 of income from your short-term rentals and you got $100,000 of tax deductions, so you're paying zero taxes, um, and so you're showing that you made on paper zero income, but that's just not true. You actually have now $100,000 in the bank. So it actually is better because you're not paying taxes. Had you paid taxes on that, you would have had to pay a, a 30, 40% tax rate. You would have a lot less money than you actually have by taking those extra tax deductions. So it makes no sense logically to me. Um, I have found that um, you know, there are lenders, like I mentioned, that just are not savvy enough or not aware of that. So my advice to that would just be to shop around um, and find those lenders who, who know what they're talking about and, and can help you. Well, the goal with real estate investing is to eventually end up out of uh, conventional financing and having to do uh, commercial anyway. So the hope is that eventually you're, you're not having to worry about conventional financing uh, in anyway. So um, another question. So let's say give this uh, scenario in a vacuum, like independent of anyone's uh, personal financial status. And, and situations. So let's say a person has maybe like a 10 unit apartment building, a few single family long-term rentals, and then maybe like $2 million short-term rentals. Mm -hmm. What would be the ideal scenario in terms of which one would you do first? Which asset class works the best? Which asset class is the easiest to do for a newbie who's like, oh, I've never thought about doing this. And they have a few investments already, of course, in a vacuum, personal, mm -hmm situations um, notwithstanding, what is the best course of action when you're trying to decide, okay, what am I going to do with these properties? I know I want to do this, but which one should I do first? 
So I'll mention a couple things that will help uh, this hypothetical person make a decision because there are a couple really important factors to consider. Um, but even before I mention that, I will say that we always run uh, a free feasibility analysis, which means you can know for any property ahead of time what the potential tax savings would be for any individual property before actually getting a conservation study done. So that's really important because that just gives you a lot more context and helps you make that decision. So this hypothetical decision will be a lot easier to make once you know specifically which property would be better. And there are properties that actually get more benefit than others. A lot of it does depend on, on how big it is, uh, what the landscaping uh, amount is, meaning if it's more of a garden style versus if it's more of a, a city property. I know we're dealing with stuff in the Smoky Mountains, right? There's a lot of cabins, there's a lot of uh, landscaping, there's potentially um, a lot going on in the property. However, th that's one thing. Commercial properties tend to have a little bit more of accelerated depreciation. So for example, multifamily properties or or even retail office, and we do this for any type of uh, property whatsoever. So that's, that's the one thing. So the two things that I will mention that will help make the decision easier besides for that free feasibility analysis is, number one, you have to look at your individual tax situation. What is gonna make sense for you? Um, do you need all these extra deductions? And this, the factor that's going to make the biggest difference is something that's called a real estate professional status. I've seen this come up in the forums, right? In the, um, in the, in the short-term uh, shop group where we've discussed this. Real estate professional status is a tax status, an IRS status that allows you if you spend the majority of your time real estate as a real estate professional, so Avery, for yourself, for example, you guys are real estate professionals because you're spending the majority of your time in, number one, managing the properties, number two, brokering and acquisitions, all kinds of things like that. So you get a special tax benefit, okay? And let me explain how this works. Normally speaking, you have um, your passive income, which is coming from your rentals. That goes... Um, you, this depreciation that we're creating, this conservation we're doing, is considered a passive deduction. And that passive deduction goes against your passive income. Okay, so Schedule E, Schedule E. Okay, that's first and foremost. Any extra deductions that you may have, and you may have a lot more deductions if you do conservation beyond your income, you can use that. If you're a real estate professional, you can now use that against your ordinary income as well or any other active income from any other source. If you're a broker, you're making a lot of money as a broker, getting commissions and things like that. That's taxed at the highest tax rate possible. If you're a wholesaler or you're doing fix and flips or you're doing anything else, that income's taxed at the highest rate possible. Getting your rental property deductions to now offset that, that can only be done if you're, you or your spouse, only one of you needs to get this status, are a real estate professional. So this is something that... It's probably the most important factor to decide which property. So now back to our vacuum and the properties themselves, I will say that getting that feasibility analysis un helps you understand which one will actually be better. But multifamily usually gets more, uh, more garden style type of apartments, especially if the uh, furnishings are a lot nicer, get more tax benefits than others. Awesome. One thing I want to zoom in on that you just said, uh, and I know you're not a CPA, but from where you're sitting, you do have some experience with this. So a lot of people ask about how do I get real estate professional status? Uh, it's obvious for somebody like me who I am full time in real estate, but a lot of people like a lot of physicians who are investing in real estate part time, maybe they want their spouse to be able to get that real estate professional status. What does that look like? How does someone who is not a full time real estate agent or investor get that? 
So I'll mention two things. So first of all, it's very difficult if you have a full-time job to also get the real estate professional status. Um, however, a spouse can get it. And if one spouse has that status, then you can both apply it to both of your incomes. Okay, so that's, that's really important. And I've seen a lot of people do it this way. So how to get the real estate professional status, I'll talk about. Um, there's two qualifications, but I will mention that short-term rentals have a special status that you may not even need the real estate professional status in order to use that income or those deductions to offset active income. Okay, so I'll touch on both of those points. So really two very specific things. Number one, how do we get the status? Uh, two qualifications. And number two, short-term rentals have a very, very specific um, rule that actually kind of overrides that, if you will, and allows you to get these, uh, to use those deductions even if you're not a real estate professional, okay? So number one is there are two factors. You need to be spending the majority of your time in the real estate trader business, okay, which means you cannot really have another full-time job in order to get this status, uh, but you need to be tracking your hours. So what does that consist of if you're operating, managing, brokering, acquiring, doing construction, anything that's really dealing with rental properties, okay? So if you're managing them, self-managing, and you're spending enough time and that's your full-time job or, or your most full-time job, um, even if you have another part-time job, if you're spending more time in that than your other part-time job, then you could qualify. You need to have the second qualification is 750 hours a year. And so these hours really need to be tracked in some, some way or another. You write down or track those hours saying, I'm spending X amount of time actually really involved in the operations and the management of the property. So it's not enough just to kind of be looking at uh, things or even doing bookkeeping, for example, is not really considered real uh, operational managing of the property. Uh, but there are things that, that are considered that. Again, I'm not a CPA, and although I do more know more about the subject than most CPAs out there, I would <laughs> recommend you to speak to your specific CPA to make sure that you can um, fit that qualification. And I'll touch on the second point, which is something really unique regarding short-term rentals, is that, like I mentioned, they have a little bit of a different status than other rental properties for some reason or another. And I really don't even know why that is, but regardless of why that is, that's the reality. So the tax law uh, ruled, tax courts ruled that you can use, as long as you have 500 hours and you are again, materially participating, which means you're actually involved in the hospitality aspect of it, which can be difficult if you're managing properties remotely. Um, so that's really where the challenge comes in. However, if you are actually locally managing your, your short-term rentals and dealing with them, you can use the cost segregation, the extra depreciation to offset your ordinary income as well because those short-term rental properties um, are considered active for, for you. And so you're considered an active investor on that side. Awesome. That was a really, really great nugget because so many people have questions about that, uh, that real estate status, uh, the real estate professional status, sorry. Yeah. Uh, so awesome, awesome information there. So uh, are the... Zooming back out, a uh, different question. So are the regulations around cost segging, uh, are those different in different states or is it like one federal regulation and law? So typically cost segregation depreciation is federal tax law. Um, all the rules and regulations are, are put out by the IRS. So they're in the, you know, the tax code, which is federal tax. The, there is one difference that certain, and you, and you can take these deductions on your federal taxes and you can take them on your state taxes as well. So you can use those deductions across both. However, there are some states, um, I'm not sure of all of them, I believe California, New York, um, I wanna say 
Pennsylvania, there might be one other, I think there are three or four states that do not recognize the 100% bonus depreciation, which means, uh, which was a new tax law that came out a couple years ago. And so you can still do cost segregation, you can still accelerate the depreciation, and you can take bonus depreciation on a federal level, your federal taxes, but then when you go into your state taxes, your state tax income, you, if you're in one of those states, you can't use uh, the bonus depreciation to offset that. So that's the one difference. Otherwise, uh, yes, it, it's recognized across the board. Okay, good to know. I, I've, in the past 10 years, only lived in states that do not have state income tax. So the whole state income tax thing is kind of foreign to me when, when talking about taxes. So you wouldn't say that there are necessarily any states that are less friendly towards doing cost segregation than others? No, not whatsoever. Awesome. Um, so is there ever a time when you would advise someone against doing a cost segregation analysis? Sure. And the, the first conversation I always have with people is just to understand their business plan, to understand, you know, what they're planning on doing with this property and what their overall real estate goals are, because it can make sense. Because if you can have income and then offset that and not have to pay income taxes for even one year or, or five years or 10 years, that's going to be awesome. That's really going to help you to scale by having more income to reinvest. Uh, there are a couple cases where I do recommend not doing it. And number one is, first of all, if the property is too small and too small is kind of relative, but usually anything purchased for over a half a million dollars is like a no brainer. Okay. At that point, there's so much tax benefit there. It makes sense. Cause again, we're taking a percentage of that overall purchase price and then how much of that we can take as an upfront tax deduction. The smaller you get, right, the smaller that percentage is going to be. So if you're talking about a $100,000 uh, single family, it's not going to be as beneficial because you're only going to take maybe 20% of that $20,000 tax deduction. Again, it's not a lot um, to get done. So that's one case where I would uh, advise against it. The other case would be if you're if you're planning on holding a property very short term. When I say very short term is less than two years. Okay, so if you're holding it less than a year and it's really more like a flip, that itself is, if you never place it in service and you never actually rented it out, that's not even considered rental property. You don't get depreciation. But if you do hold it for a year and it's more than a flip, but you're holding less than two years, on the sale of a property, you have a tax called depreciation recapture tax, which means you have to pay or you're subject to a tax on the amount of depreciation that you took. Within the first two years to get that tax deduction and then now pay a tax on it later, you're still benefit there, but it's a lot less than if you were to hold the property for three, four, five or, or more years. Okay, so it basically doesn't make sense to do really uh, the lower, lower budget properties. And it probably doesn't make sense if you're planning to turn around and sell them super quickly. Correct. Yeah. Awesome. So Getting towards the end of our podcast, I'm sure a lot of people listening who aren't familiar with this process have a lot of questions around uh, what it costs to do something like this, because it sounds like a very complicated process for somebody who might be mm -hmm. new to investing. Uh, right. What are the costs typically associated with getting one of these things done? So traditionally, you know, it, it has cost uh, a few thousand dollars to get a conservation study done um, for larger multifamily or commercial properties can be, you know, anywhere upwards of four or five thousand dollars, which is really not a lot when you're talking about getting a few hundred thousand dollars of tax benefit. Uh, it's really not a lot. However, we recognize that short term rentals, um, and this is just something we came up with recently, short term rentals are becoming much more popular and single families can still get a lot of benefit. But the more you have to pay to get it done, the less it makes sense, right? If you're getting X amount of tax 
deductions, but then have to pay a few thousand dollars to get it done. It makes less sense. So we actually came out this year to discount that um, heavily. I'm not sure how long this is going to last. <laughs> Truthfully, we we're kind of testing the waters, but we kind of lowered our price for short-term rentals specifically to around, um, depending on the property. And again, temporarily at least uh, around 1500 to $2,000 uh, to get it done, which is usually half the price of what a, a commercial or multifamily property might cost to get done. That's not bad at all. No, not at all. All right. So what advice would you give a new investor who maybe doesn't have any investments yet working on getting a few things and, you know, they're trying to plan for the future? Uh, what what advice would you give a new a new investor getting into investing? Well, first and foremost, just keep learning. Okay, educate yourself as much as possible. Um, and for me that you know, it's listening to podcasts like this, there's incredible content out there, whether it's bigger pockets, forums and things like that, or Facebook groups, where you can really ask uh, a lot of people who are doing what exactly what you want to do. And just learn from them. So if you know anyone personally, just ask them questions or, or hang out with them. And if you don't, virtually make friends with people like, you know, myself and Avery and, and the group and all the people out there who have done just that, have invested. Uh, I myself don't own any short-term rentals, but after being involved in the Facebook group for a, a couple of months now, I'm like really interested in it because I'm learning more. And so the only way you can really kind of get started is by educating yourself. So continue that at any point. The second thing I would say and well, first of all, you need a lot of humility to do that, to continue learning and, and realizing that even though you may be a very smart person, there's so much to learn from everyone. And each person has their own experiences that you can learn from. So the second thing I would say is you know, don't wait. <laughs> don't wait too long, right? Jump in, right? Don't think I need X amount of money, right, in order to do it. No, maybe there are strategies or ways that you can figure out or educate yourself about how to get involved sooner because you know, there's a famous quote, when was the best time, you know, to invest in, uh, in real estate? And they say, you know, 20 years ago, right? When's the second best time right today? So don't hesitate, try to try to learn as much as you can, but pull the trigger and get jump in as, as soon as uh, you think feasible. That is such great advice to find someone that is successfully doing what you want to do and make friends with them and learn from them. And then also don't hesitate. I know, when we first bought bought our first property, uh, we, we had a $100,000 budget and I made a little financial plan for our family. And I put us on a $20 a day budget each, just my husband and I, to save up for that $100,000 property and for the down payment. And it took about a year to save that up. And by that time, those $100,000 properties were in the 130s. So um, definitely you do have to jump pretty quickly when you want to start investing. Um, so last question for you is, uh, what is your favorite book that has impacted your mindset? Um, so there, I'm a big, uh, you know, traditional, um, I'm Jewish. I don't know if you guys know that, but I, I read a lot in, uh, in Hebrew, the original. So for me, it's not really business books. I don't spend a lot of time reading business books. So they're more traditional, um, religious texts that really have you know, affected me in a lot of ways. And there's a great book, it's written by a, you know, 17th century uh, scholar called The Way of God. So in Hebrew, it's called Derech Hashem, The Way of God. And it really just breaks down, you know, everything, <laughs> everything about life and, uh, and living and how to make it in this world and 
live a fulfilling life. So I'll, I'll say that, and I will mention a business book as well because I've come across a lot, especially uh, in the past few years since I started my podcast as well, in interviewing people, asking them this question. And one book that has you know taught me a lot, I would say, is um, Gary Vaynerchuk. Uh, crushing it. So crush it and then crushing it and then jab, 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 left hook, which are all great books, but crushing it was the sequel to crush it, which really actually spoke to me a lot about real life examples of people using social media to grow their businesses. And that's just, that was a big, uh, like shift for me and how I go about running my business. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. So much great advice here. I am sure we're going to get lots of questions on how to get a hold of you once this airs. So can you tell us where everyone can find you? Because I'm sure everyone's everyone's going to want to work with you now. Well, um, yeah, the best, <laughs> the best place to find me, um, I'm really active on LinkedIn, believe it or not. So that's my go-to social media platform. So you can find me there. You can also go to yonaweiss.com. So just my name, Y-O-N-A-H. W-E-I-S-S. And uh, I'm part of the, the Short Term Shop Facebook group. So you can hit me up there. And many places to find me. I'm happy to answer any questions that do come about. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming today. So much great advice. And we will talk to you very soon. Okay. Thank you.